Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA Podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host. And today we're going to have a conversation with uh, Clay Mitchell from Fallline Capital. A couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation with Eric O'Brien, his partner, but I thought it'd be good to bring in uh, Clay, <laughs> excuse me, uh, for the people out there. <laughs> oh, man. I was uh, down in Phoenix this week, and uh, my uh, grandson, at least I'm going to blame it on him, gave me a little bit of a cold, so you may hear me cough a couple times. Uh, since we're listening to Clay mostly, that shouldn't be a big deal on this podcast, but I am apologizing up front if you hear a little bit of coughing. So, uh, Clay, how are things going? Great. We've gotten off to a, a good planting season here in Iowa. We've had uh, a few really warm days, and... Uh, trying to get some seed in the ground before it turns cold over the next the next week. Yeah, I think uh, yesterday and the day before here in Colorado, we were in the mid 80s. Well, I guess yesterday was 70s. Two days before that were mid 80s, which were record highs. Today, we're barely going to get up to 40. So I think our weather's moving your way. Yeah, we've been uh, we've been in the 70s and 80s and uh, expecting some some 50s and 40s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for the audience out there, let's let's start off with a little bit about your background. Uh, obviously, you've already mentioned that you're in Iowa, but uh, is that where you grew up and then where you went to college and all that good stuff? Yeah, I grew up uh, south of Waterloo, Iowa, in 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 Tama County. Um, fifth generation farm here, pretty typical corn and soybean farm in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, my dad was uh, also an engineer, and so I, I grew up building and designing and and coding things um you know it's a very uh very physical uh way to grow up as well um you know hard work that you do with your hands uh, we build our own grain storage and fabricate uh some of our own machines um and you'd look at your hands at the end of the day and couldn't believe what you built which is something that uh fewer and fewer people seem to experience these days and it's it's really enjoyable to me to work with people at at, at fall line and and uh, back on the farm in Iowa who who still have that experience. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. My dad uh, only had an eighth grade education, grew up in the Dakotas, uh, but he built, I think, I think he built seven houses himself during his lifetime. Um, I remember one year or multiple years, I'd be out in the shop and he'd be overhauling an engine. I mean, he'd take the engine out and take it all the way down and put it all the way back and, and uh, and it was a very good welder, and I tried to learn how to weld, but uh, I was not as good a welder as he was. That that welding's a little bit of it's more of an art than a science, almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know when uh, I, I think that's instilled with you a, and a, a willingness to, to jump in and and put your hands on things. I know when you visited with me on the farm, uh, you're you're not afraid to start running the combine or or grabbing <laughs> a wrench or or whatever it is. Yeah, no. As a matter of fact, because uh, Chris Barron is not too far from you, I think about 40 miles away. And it seems like about every time I'm back there for harvest, uh, I'm either helping them uh, uh, repair a grain cart or I'm driving a combine or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, that's my idea of a vacation, you know, so because uh, I'm, I'm on a computer way too much. Yeah, I think we all are. Yeah. So, so you grew up in Iowa on a fifth generation farm and then uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that you ended up going off to college at uh, 
did you, uh, I know you went to Harvard. Did you start at Harvard or did you start yeah. somewhere else? Yep. No, my undergrad was all at Harvard and that was uh, biomedical engineering. And then I did a salt and stone fellowship at Cornell for grad school. And, and that was in crop science. Now, Cornell, that's in upper state New York, right? Right. Beautiful part of uh, upstate New York around the Finger Lakes. And they're gorgeous, gorgeous around campus. Um, yeah. Beautiful place to go to school, and and it is a fairly um, it 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 really focuses on Agda, and I know it's got a big dairy program and so on, but it seems like a lot of its focus is is related to ag. Is that right? There's there's a very large ag school. They've um, you know the motto of Cornell is any study for any person, and so if you want to do hotel management or industrial labor relations or just about anything else they've got it but it's um the ag school is is very strong um and it's a really diverse cropping region both permanent crops and also annual crops root crops um and animal husbandry um in in upstate new york um so a, a lot broader uh cropping than kind of the corn and soybean uh yeah. based uh you know ag schools but th they also do a lot of international work yeah yeah. Now you mentioned you got a degree in biomedical engineering. I, I think uh, for our audience out there, including myself, what is biomedical engineering? It's really a combination of computer mechanical systems um, engineering, you know, applied to biological systems. So, um, you know, sometimes there's more of a mechanical track. Sometimes it's bioelectric signals and processing and neural networks. Um, you know, Harvard's very kind of academic rather than practical, and yeah. so it's it's primarily math. Uh, that'd be okay. I I, I like math, uh, although I will admit uh, calculus was never my favorite. Uh, you know, I, I uh, uh, derivatives and so on. I could understand that, but uh, that wasn't necessarily the high point of my math career. <laughs> yeah, you're probably not doing a lot of derivatives and integrals in. Um, uh, in, in your, in your accounting work. So no, 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 no. we're not doing any of those at all. So, <laughs> but, uh, so you graduated from Harvard, then you went to uh, Cornell and got your, uh, graduate degree there. And then you, uh, I think at that point, did you, uh, go to a career or did you come back to farm or what happened after that? Yeah, I, I did some work, uh, you know, shortly around college in, um, both the biomedical engineering field and also in um, in, in agriculture, and I worked at AgWeb in Philadelphia, um, and and I had bought farmland uh, as I was finishing up college near where my parents farmed, and then in um, 1999 started farming full time. Okay, and and again, as you mentioned, primarily corn and soybeans in I would say sort of east. East Central Iowa, Tama County. Now, I also think, don't you grow some uh, seed corn or seed beans uh, for that area too? Yeah, we've done quite, you know, quite a few identity preserved crops. Um, well, within corn and soybeans, you know, we've grown some uh, rye here as well. Um, but uh, yeah, this is this is a strong seed corn, seed bean area. Because there's a, is it a decalb or a bear plant fairly near you? Uh, both, uh, both Corteva and bear grow in this area. Okay, yep. okay, okay. 
Well, I and as you mentioned, I've been out to your place a couple times, and it's uh, very good ground. I know you got some really good yields out there. Yeah, we can grow some great corn. Um, we uh, it, shoot for you know close to three hundred bushels here in in corn. The, so, the soybean yields aren't quite as high as what we get in the in the southern United States, where eighties and nineties are pretty common. Where we're not quite at that level here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, those guys can definitely grow some beans down there. Now, they have a tough time growing corn, but they can grow some beans. That's right. We we get pretty consistently higher corn yields than than we get in the southern U.S. I think the the high nighttime temperatures kind of throttle back what's possible in the corn there. Yeah, and and that's like out in my area where I grew up in Washington State. You know, we get the nice warm days, but we get cool nights. And uh, like you say. Uh, in your area where you're shooting for 300 out in my area they're they're almost upset if they don't get 300 so uh, um you know it's just a little bit different uh, of course part of that's just through the fact that they have irrigation without irrigation uh, the corn yields would be about two i think so uh, <laughs> you know when you get no rain between about uh the middle of april through the middle of october uh in that corn growing area in washington state you're not going to grow very good corn no, that's right. So, it takes a lot of water. Yeah. Now you ended up uh, meeting up with, well, you went to school with Eric, and then how did you guys meet up together to start forming a fall line? Yeah, we were on a ski team together. And, you know, athletic teams are a pretty strong way to bond with people in, in college. And a lot of those are long lasting bonds. Um, I was on the rugby team and, and wrestling team as well. But, uh, it's it's a little easier to get together with people and, and go skiing than to uh, go get together to wrestle or play rugby. So that's <laughs> something that we did pretty consistently after college. So then I got to ask you, who's the better skier? <clears throat> well, um, we were we we're planning to have a showdown at our at our uh, biannual summit meeting in Utah uh, this year. So we were hosting our scientists and entrepreneurs, and that was. Kind of one of the questions to be answered, uh, but somebody <laughs> ran into me and uh, broke my leg uh, the day, or the morning of the giant slalom race. So it's, <laughs> it's still unknown, but in two years we'll find out. Okay, okay. Yeah, it sounds like you had a hit and run uh, type situation. Yeah, it was a little bit of a Gwyneth Paltrow, except that uh, I actually don't know who it was. When I <laughs> when, when I got up, they were gone. Yeah, no, I... Uh... Uh, I've, uh, of course, I didn't learn to ski till I was 30, so I, I was never a great skier. I mean, I could get down black diamond runs and so on, but I've been hit a few times, and luckily, I don't think I've hit very many people, and if I did, I would definitely hang around to make sure they were okay. I hope you haven't hit too many people. No, no, I don't think I have, so uh, um, so you, you were on the ski team, and then uh, you decided to... Uh, because of Eric's background and your background, you got together and started up Fall Line, which originally sort of started off as a purely uh, Agland acquisition type fund, but then you started doing more and more Ag Tech. Let's go into those details. Uh, wh what were some of the earlier ones you did? And and let's just go through how you decided to do that and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, you know, Eric had his career was entirely focused on kind of Silicon Valley venture capital. He was at one of the top firms and, and I was focused on 
purely on farming and um but we we'd still stay in touch and get together and he visited the farm in the fall of 2010 and that really primed him to see the opportunity for how our skill sets um could be combined in, in at a time when there was more and more investor interest in in agriculture because we were in the kind of a rising commodity boom at that time um so he was he was seeing uh you know people in silicon valley starting to talk about opportunities in in in, in agriculture and so uh we started the firm in in 2011 and uh the, yeah as you said the primary um kind of asset that we were focused on initially was was farmland but we we knew that we wanted to have a, a technical approach to it we wanted to apply new technology and so we had a small amount of the first fund that was allocated to venture investing and um you know that worked very well and so we continued just to slowly increase that to where we're about half and half right now and um I, I know that uh, one of the earlier investments you did, because we were both on the advisory council, was granular at that time and then got sold Corteva. What are some of the other ones that maybe you invested in early on? Um, Planet Labs, um, which is interesting because it's not canonically an agricultural company. Ag is important to Planet Labs, but um, you know they serve a lot of other markets. And that's something kind of characteristic of our of our investing and my work on the farm, a lot of the technologies that really had an impact over the previous 15 years didn't come from ag companies. And so, you know, when you look at our portfolio today, similar to Planet Labs, you'd see probably 40% of the companies <clears throat> are broader than, than just agriculture. Um, we're mostly upstream of the farm and um, occasionally invest in food companies as well. We'll go downstream where there's really, we identify strong defensible technology and uh impossible foods was one of the early investments in that fund as well so when you say downstream versus upstream just for the listeners out there sort of expand on what that means for each of those terms yeah so um upstream of the farm would be an input to the farm or a tool that the farm uses something where um you know the, the farmer is is a person making a judgment about the value of you know, the product or service from the company. It's um, and and there should be an impact on making the farm more productive, more efficient, or more sustainable. Downstream of the farm um, would be, <clears throat> you know, in, <clears throat> anything that the you know commodities are processed into, but uh, can also be, um, you know, in, involved in you know, transportation for downstream of the farm or markets downstream of the farm. Um, you know, anything that, uh, where kind of the, um, the farmer's not the customer, but, right. you know, somebody further on in the, in the value chain. So like impossible foods would be a down, a downstream and what would be just as an example, what would be an upstream that you may have invested in? Um, Sound agriculture, um, which is is uh, something we invested in fairly early on and have continued to invest in. Um, so you know the the products there are nitrogen use efficiency um, uh, product that's uh, you know stimulate stimulates microbes to produce more nitrogen. Um, okay. And there's also um, an epigenetics platform that allows rapidly 
breeding traits into a wide variety of crops. So anything that's in plant genetics, any software, hardware that a, a farmer would use would be you know, upstream of the farm. Okay, okay. Now, um, when I was at Top Producer back in Nashville earlier this year, uh, they had a, a group of ag tech, you know, um, very early on ag tech. And one of them that I'm just curious what your thoughts on the technology is, one of the ones that I was very curious about was using solar power to create ammonia or to create um, you know nitrogen ammonia and so on um you know they'd have a big solar panel out in the field and it create the the ammonia slash nitrogen that the farmer could then put into the field uh, wh what's your thoughts on that technology or have you seen that yeah there are quite a few versions of that um and and a lot of different approaches to green ammonia, green nitrogen, which is you know, using renewable resources rather than you know, natural gas um, for, for creating uh, nitrogen. You know, it, at this point, the, due to the energy cost, the CapEx, um, it's about twice as expensive um, yeah. for any of these, these forms of green nitrogen. It's definitely a big movement. There have been, you know, numerous uh you know billion dollar plus investments in greenfield facilities to do this at a large scale um you know my intuition is that that's more viable than a lot of the distributed um nitrogen production um and so you know i think overall it's it's not something that in, in the near term is going to make nitrogen cheaper um it's likely to make you know make it more expensive so i think what we experienced in a doubling of nitrogen prices that we had over the last year is um, kind of indicative of of what we're likely to see in the future. So, yeah. you know, I think we're we've gone through a nice drop in in nitrogen prices here this spring, um, but uh, you know, I, I I don't think over the next decade we're going to see, yeah, uh, you know, four hundred dollar ammonia. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I still get some. Uh... Uh, news from out where I grew up in in southeastern Washington, and there's a company that is planning on. They just signed off on buying some land from the local port to put in a billion dollar plant to do green nitrogen or green ammonia and so on. But the interesting thing I saw was in order to do this, it required like 350 megawatts of power per year, which is essentially you know that that's enough power to uh, you know, power a full size city. So, uh, and they were talking of, and they're wanting to make it quote renewable power. And they were talking about something doing with the nuclear, the local nuclear, because that's where the Hanford uh, nuclear reservation is at. Maybe some type of what do they call it? The miniature nuclear power, or the smaller nuclear power that might be a dedicated nuclear power plant for that uh, nitrogen plant. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. But but again, that's a lot of power. And and uh, uh, I know Bonneville Power, which is the big administrator out there, they normally only allow a large um, industrial customer to only go up to 10 megawatts. And this is 35 times that. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if that ever really gets off the ground. Well, there is. Uh you know, a lot of cheap power in that area. It's it's uh, one of the things that's really benefited farmers who have, you know, high power requirements for irrigation. And, and certainly 
um, you know, green ammonia production will be, you know, vastly cheaper in the areas that have, you know, a sig significant advantage with, you know, re renewable power. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what are some of the other uh, trends that you're looking at maybe over the next few years? What 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 is sort of piqued your interest? You know, on the farming side, you know, double cropping in the southern United States is one of the things that's been really exciting for our team. And, you know, we have for a number of years identified that as a way to increase uh, production, intensify farms and 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 get uh, you know, something anchoring the soil and absorbing all that sunlight and uh, and rainfall, you know, during the winter, which is, um, you know, quite a bit different from what I grew up with in the north. You know, these are areas where where 50 or 60 inches of rainfall and and, uh, you know, a lot of solar energy coming throughout the winter. Yeah. Um, and so that's been, uh, you know, successful for us. But we, we've been really happy to see kind of new commitments and cooperations. Um, between Corteva, Bungie, and Chevron for um, processing canola into uh, into biofuels, and that's you know really being built on an expectation of new acres going into canola that haven't grown canola before. So you know a new crop um, has a lot of new technology requirements as well, and you know this is an area where um, a lot of cropping has been limited by soils that are just won't hold up um you know heavy farm machinery during much of the year and you know planting and harvest can be you know very inconsistently timed um it's an area where you see herbicides typically sprayed by airplane during the spring and and that leads to a lot of drift which then limits what you know farmers in the neighborhood can grow so you know one of the things that excites me broadly is when there are new technologies that um, that solve a problem that that isn't just replacing an existing tool on the farm and kind of leaving the rest of the farm unchanged like we often see but something that catalyzes a bigger change in the cropping system and um, so i really look for also in our kind of technical investment areas in our venture when does a particular solution lead to such a, a large cropping system change that virtually all the inputs and outputs of the farm are changed. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that's really helpful for, you know, those cropping systems in the south is spraying with drones. And, and up to this point, it's just been very small drones that have been available. Um, but we're, you know, we've just got regulatory approval at uh, one of our portfolio companies, Guardian Ag, for heavy lift drones. So it's it's the first FAA approval for heavy lift EV tall machines for any commercial use in the United States. Yeah, when, um, when you say heavy lift, how how big would these drones be and how much uh, how much can they carry? Yeah, initially 500 pounds and we've got uh, you know designs for 1200, 2400. So Kind of the the initial machine is scaled, um, you know, primarily for, um, you know, California crops, yeah. and and kind of the the field sizes there, and and really built for, um, you know, heavy application rates as well. So, spraying, you know, up to twenty gallons an acre. 
So on 20 gallons an acre is about 100 and 180 pounds, let's say. So if they carried 500 pounds, they could spray three acres before they'd have to go back. Does that sound about right? That's right. And and, and so that kind of speed of, of refilling is also um, you know, important here. And Guardian has figured out how to recharge batteries in the same amount of time that you refill the tank. So, you know, it's it's effectively, um, you know, battery recharge that's several times faster than a Tesla supercharger. Oh, so they must have some type of, of generator on, on the truck there or on the, uh, I'm guessing they have some type of a trailer and they got a generator, they got water, they got the spray, they got the drones and everything else, or they have multiple trailers, I'm guessing. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's um you know generally gonna be with with uh you know a trailer to carry the um the generator and the drone and then uh you know you've got your tendering trailer as well. Um but yeah it's it's very high power requirements during that super fast recharge. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm guessing because I, I actually have a cousin that's doing some drone stuff in Washington State and uh you know, we were up at the uh, Tri-State Grain Convention. And he was uh, showing off his drone there. Now that drone's a little bit smaller, or quite a bit smaller, but I mean, still decent size. Um, but I'm guessing when they go out to do these, they they have a series of what three drones, six drones, nine drones, and uh, in order to get the field done fairly quickly. Yeah, people are um, you know with the smaller drones, really trying to manage swarms. Um, yeah. it, it, it creates a very intense workload for, for the person refilling. Yeah. It's going to be, it, it's a very different way of operating. And, you know, I've got a lot of conviction that we're going to see a change in machine form from, you know, a lot of ground-based applications to, you know, aerial applications. It's not just replacing places where they're currently aerial applications, but the, the precision not having soil compaction, rutting issues, crop damage. Um, it's a huge advantage. And the, you know, when we look at the complexity of the machine, it's much simpler than a large ground-based machine. It's actually you know, something that has a CapEx and OpEx advantage. And so it's, it's, uh, it's not an uphill climb, I don't think, to get to, uh, to, get to drones. But um, as you go larger and larger, the safety requirements and the amount of training go way way up and so the you know as for the heavy machines the faa is requiring you know both a trained you know pilot in command and and there's a lot of rules and regulations around the procedures they have to follow and also a visual observer who's not doing anything else during the time when the drone is flying so oh, um awesome. you know as, as i look around at all the spraying going on around here there's typically um you know, somebody sitting in a in a semi or a large straight truck um, tendering who's, you know, sitting and playing on their cell phone or not doing anything. Um, <laughs> so often, like, there, we, we do typically see um, kind of an extra person around. But how this evolves, you know, whether or not you actually need an extra person or the same, um, if it's something farmers can get trained up to do or service providers, you know, I, I, I don't have a, a real view on that yet. But uh, I think, uh, you know, people with an entrepreneurial spirit and, and a good mind for efficiency will figure out, you know, 
the best way to apply people to this. Yeah, do you think at some point then certainly like a John Deere will get involved and start uh, manufacturing these drones or, or what's your thoughts on that? You know, um, it's, I, I, I think for most of the, ag, the major ag companies doing, uh, it, it's a, it's a, aviation is, um, it, it's kind of a world unto its own. The, yeah. the, the regulations of the FAA or something that are different, the way that you approach safety and reliability is, is different. Um, you know, I, I, I think specialists in the field really have an efficiency advantage. I think trying to do this within kind of an existing OEM, um, this, certainly they could do it. I think um, the cost would probably be, be you know, 10 times higher uh, yeah. or more, uh, maybe 50 times higher, 100 times higher than, than uh, a team that's just really purpose-built uh, right. to do exactly this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, since we're talking a little bit about drones, uh, what's your thoughts on autonomous tractors, autonomous tr uh, combines where, you know, there won't be a human actually operating that machine? As a matter of fact, there might not, not even be a cap because that's how, you know, John Deere can cut out uh, $50,000 or $100,000 of cost. Uh, do you see that coming in the next 10 years, five years? I know the technology is almost there, but is it going to be allowed? Um, I think it will be allowed and it's, you know, it's definitely going to happen. It's, it's one of the areas of automation and robotics that's not that exciting to us. When, when we look at, um, you know, 300 million acres of cropland in the United States and the, the flow of resources that go into that, the value of the, the land itself, the, uh, you know, the irrigation, the seed, the fertilizer, the chemicals, um, it's, you know, the improving resource efficiency in all of these major inputs is is really what matters. Labor is a really small part. Um, it's different as we get into specialty crops where, yeah. you know, you have a lot of crops still getting hand weeded. And, and in a lot of crops, it's thousand uh, dollars an acre is kind of a useful, you know, benchmark for for hand weeding costs. Um, and we had some organic carrots that uh, we spent more in hand weeding cost than um, the value of the land itself. I mean, it can yeah. go up significantly um, from from $1,000 an acre. So I think, uh, and even in those cases, having the machine that, uh, you know, goes out and picks apples without anybody around or does the weeding without anybody around is, it doesn't add much value upon um, really figuring out how to automate that that hand task. Um, so if somebody's still on the machine or observing the machine, you you could still get a hundredfold reduction in in labor cost. So um, you know autonomy is definitely happening. I think there are a few areas of of uh, things like mowing in certain conditions where it's a significant advantage uh, to be autonomous. But in, in most of the kind of production that we're involved in. Um, that really doesn't move the needle. Yeah, yeah. If you're talking the commodity crops like corn and beans and wheat and so on, labor really isn't a huge percentage of the cost of production. You know, it's it's uh, it's equipment, it's uh, cash rent, it's uh, fertilizer and so on. Uh, you'd have to go drop down 
to about uh, expense number eight or nine before you really hit labor. That's right. And at this point, I mean, you, your experience in the field, I'm sure, would also uh, be such that you see a lot of interventions. You you stop a machine to fix or repair or adjust something all the time. You know, yep. I've done this thousands of times. And even with new machines, the reliability is um, it's it's not anywhere near what it should be. You know, so often I talk to you know farmers who are um, you know just got a new combine, a new sprayer, or something, and they're they're down because there's some problem with the yeah. um, you know electronics or hydraulics or something. And um, so you know you you still need to be around getting out of the cab, um, just kind of putting you further from the machine makes it harder to do those interventions. So, you know, the, the key thing for enabling autonomy is continued improvement in all of those things that we stop for to make adjustments and, right. and uh, you know, clearing places where the trash is plugging and, and, and so on, which is, you know, what the machinery manufacturers are, are working on all the time anyway. I mean, they're, um, you know, c certainly it is better than it has been in the past, but there's there's a lot of improvement to be made. Plus, I can tell you out in my neck of the woods where you're getting on a nice 45, 50% slope and uh, the autonomous machine thinks, oh, that's a piece of cake to go over that. Well, suddenly your machine's down in the bottom of the draw and you've totaled a 500,000 or million dollar machine. That may not work very well. Yeah, and there may be something that you remember from, um, you know, there's a, a particular wet spot or soft spot or something like that that a computer vision wouldn't see, but you've got a, a knowledge and memory of, and, and so you're going to approach it a certain way. Um, and, you know, eventually machine intelligence gets to a point where it's making all the same judgments you are, but it's it's nowhere close uh, yeah. to that today. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, we have what we call eyebrows out there, and uh, eyebrows have to be very, very careful how you approach them. So, and like you say, the machine would ultimately learn that but as part of that learning process if you lose the machine that that probably is not what you want so uh, um, well clay we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break and then we'll come back and and rejoin the conversation how many years away is the long run for a farmer five years ten years Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know Raboagger Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Rabo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, Raboagger Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Raboagger Finance. Back everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Nefer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation uh, with uh, Clay Mitchell uh, from Fallline Capital. So, Clay, um, anything else on on future tech that you see coming down the road, and then we'll we'll go into some of the other questions I typically have in these conversations. 
Um, you know, I think I get excited about various approaches to to weed control, that kind of next generation approaches. The you know existing small molecule chemistry that we've relied on in the past is is just you know failing pretty broadly. A lot of the resistance we have um, is metabolic resistance. That is um, resistance to multiple types of of, of herbicides, and um, you know we either need to change cropping systems or have technology that doesn't exist today. So um, that's both, you know, we see opportunities both on the biotech and the application side. We talked a little bit earlier about the heavy lift drones. That's that's part of the application technology. I think a lot of the spot spraying is, is very exciting, particularly combining spot spraying with herbicides that you wouldn't want to broadcast over the crop. You know, it allows being, um, you know, a lot hotter with your with your chemistries, you get more and more refined in in what you're hitting. I think that a lot of the machinery forms that need to operate within a canopy are, you know, haven't even been contemplated yet. There's a lot of work to be done on that. The spot spraying that we see now is really best in, some, you know, bare, uh, you know, pre-emerge or you know, very early post-emergence. And and the weed shifts that we see are you know, have, leading to later and later emergence in the crop. So there will be a lot of work that needs to be developed in, in application technology to work in those conditions. But the mechanical weeding as well, um, FarmWise is another one of our investments that I'm really excited about. So it uh, operates primarily in specialty crops with um, robotic intra-row weeding. Um, and, you know, we were talking about autonomy earlier. Initially, uh, the company went out pretty ambitious to um, try to make an an autonomous uh, weeding machine, and and they they did that. They they did successfully build one, but it was um, uh, you know still required a lot of the kind of interventions that uh, that we were talking about. Right. Um, and so and so we kind of held back, didn't invest in the early days. They uh, came up with an, a new design that was mounted on an existing tractor. And their entire focus became on that, just the implement, and uh, further refined um, the you know ground engaging, and and computer vision designs that they had started with, and uh, and I just loved it. So so we've become investors in that company, and I'm I'm on the board. Is lasers a possibility there, where a drone goes along and it shoots out a little laser to to zap the the weed, so to speak? Is that technology? Is that too far out in the the hinterlands, or is that something that might work down the road? You know, at this point, the uh, you know the the power requirements for the lasers yeah. are, are too heavy for drones, but um, you know there there's uh, you know some success with that and in. in uh, uh, you know, small weeds um, in in certain crops. So uh, you know, I, I think uh, we need a lot of different solutions for for weeding. That um, you know, new gene silencing technologies on the biotech side, new application technologies, and it's 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 really a combination of um, you know, mechanical and uh, and 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 chemical and and other types of controls. So if if the mechanical gets better that way, like they say the robotics and so on, does that allow maybe more organic farming to be a little bit more successful, a little bit more profitable? Or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, most definitely. Um, that's where a lot of the interest is highest, and um, the 
the benefits of of the mechanical weeding is highest as well. Okay. Okay. Well, I think uh, I could probably uh, talk over this stuff for another hour, but uh, you know, I, I think our listeners, uh, you know, probably like it when I keep it to about a forty-five minute uh, conversation, and we're getting close to that. So I'm going to follow up with some of my uh, normal. Uh, questions I have when I ask people. And the first one is, uh, who was your mentor? Oh, good question. Um, you know, I think we often think about mentors as people who really form our kind of characters and worldview and and as well as people who who teach us the practical things. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a great community where, you know, there were a lot of people who volunteered for Boy Scouts and Sunday school and different things like that. Those people really impacted me a lot, I think, in just character development in, in an early age, um, in, in a kind of professional setting. Um, you know, Eric really taught me the ropes on on venture and has been, you know, critical there. Um, and then, you know, in, in agronomy, I just really valued the work done by university extension agents and uh, a lot of university researchers as being, you know, unbiased. There are a lot of dedicated people in these networks who aren't highly paid, but who who do really great work. Okay. And then, uh, um, you know, in your spare time, which I know there may not be much of, uh, uh, what is your hobbies? I know obviously it was skiing, but uh, that that may be on hold for a little bit. Uh, but do you have any other hobbies? Oh, skiing, boating, you know, part of the, just the very physical uh, life I was describing kind of in growing up, um, you know, was also in recreation you know we were always skiing in the winter boating water skiing in the summer and and uh you know i can i continue loving being out in the mountains and uh and on the water that's uh, that's what i'm enjoying about so far being in colorado and our 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 weather's getting a little bit better now but my wife and i we went up to uh mount princeton hot springs last week and you're just in the middle of the collegiate mountains. You know, you got Mount Harvard, you got Mount Yale, you got Mount Princeton, you got Mount Oxford, and these are all 14,000 foot mountains that surround you. And you're at about nine, eight to 9,000 feet of elevation. So it's uh, definitely, I'm going to enjoy that part of being in Colorado. Yes, good. But I am still a reader too. So I, I still got to get my, uh, I think I've, Let's see, what am I, 63 now? And in fourth grade, I would have been 10. Uh, so I have 53 years, Clay, at least 53 years of reading at least 100 books a year. So uh, I, 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 I'm I, hoping that my eyes stay good and I can keep that trend up for another 10 or 15 or 20 years. That's very impressive. I've always been astounded at how you, you find time to do that. <laughs> and then uh, what what keeps you up at night? Um. You know, I've got a lot of confidence in um, kind of the ability of technology to solve the the, the problems that that we have. Um, but no technology is inherently good or bad. You know, technology is power, and um, you know, it's it's you know, I think my probably overarching concern is that is that we make good use of of the technologies that that we developed, um, both you know, at an individual, corporate, national level. Um, if we think about, you know, our ancestors um, who didn't have any of the things that we have today looking forward, you know, would, would they be proud of, you know, the choices that we've made? Um, and so when we think about our work, it is, um, 
it's not you know that that technology development depends upon us because it's you know someone will do it it'll happen one way or another it's it's really about putting technologies to good work um and and trying to do the the best we can you know with ourselves and our communities yeah yeah no good 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 points and then the last question i always try to ask especially farmers or people involved in farming is uh what is your definition of success in farming um you know i think everybody's got a similar uh way of looking at you know um accounting success but uh you know i think in a in a broad level um forgetting yourself and your work is is really a sign that that uh you're doing it right you've forgotten about your own convenience and inconvenience you've forgotten about your ego you you're focused on the work you're focused on the people you're around and you know, this is something I really learned in just observing, um, you know, the great craftsmen that I grew up with that uh, and you'd see um, such a focus on on the work at hand that they just kind of forget about themselves. Yeah. And um, it's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Now, sometimes uh, I remember um, when I first started my career in, as a CPA, we had just gotten an IBM PC and Lotus, Lotus one, two, three. And uh, since I was the new person joining the firm, uh, they said, well, Paul, you're gonna learn this Lotus because nobody else in the firm knows it. So I started learning Lotus. And uh, I remember I was gonna take my wife out to dinner one night and uh, and that was back before cell phones and so on and so forth. Suddenly it's nine o'clock at night and my wife is mad at me because I've forgotten about dinner. So you, 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 when you get focused in on that, Clay, sometimes you can get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I think there are stories of Isaac Newton thinking so deeply about some physical problem. He'd show up to dinner with forgetting to put clothes on. Yeah, uh, yes. So yeah, it, it could be taken too far. Yeah, I haven't gone that far, Clay. I haven't gone that far, I don't think so. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, Clay, this is great. I, I think maybe uh, six months or a year from now, we'll, we'll have another conversation to see if there's some other hot trends in ag tech. Great. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure speaking okay. with you. Perfect. Perfect. Again, this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neef, your host, signing off. <laughs>